Thanks for checking out the Vox Church podcast. We are so honored to have you join us, and we hope this message speaks to you in a powerful way. Learn more about Vox Church by visiting us online at voxchurch.org. Enjoy the message. You made it to church. Amen. God bless you. Welcome to Vox Church. I hope you are excited to be with us today. Because I'm excited to be with you. If you're new to Vox, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. And I am so thankful that we get to gather today in 15 different services, nine different locations, in micro church. So we just got to take a moment and shout out to everybody in Middletown. Hello, Middletown. We love you. God bless you. Welcome to micro church in Hartford. God bless you, Hartford. We love you. In greater Bridgeport, God bless you. We love you, Bridgeport. In North Campus, everybody say hello to North Haven. We love you, North Haven. Welcome to church. Springfield, Massachusetts is back online. God bless you. Stanford, we're meeting in Stanford in Jesus' name. God bless you, Stanford. We love you. And then our two new ones, New Britain, Connecticut is meeting today. Amen. And we got a group in Worcester, Massachusetts, praising Jesus today. God bless you. God bless you. I am so excited. And of course, for all of you joining us online, welcome to Vox Church. We are so thankful that you've taken the time to worship Jesus with us. We start a new teaching series today called Personal Jesus. Did you get your book, Personal Jesus? I hope you did at every location. If you have your book, stick it up in the air. Hopefully you've got it. If you're joining us online, you can download this devotional book on our website. Make sure that you do. I'm so excited about this devotional. I'm gonna do this with my family, with my wife, my kids. We're gonna every day gather and discuss what have we've read, what is God saying to us. Don't miss this opportunity. Look at the person next to you and ask him, did you get your book? Did you get your book? This is a powerful opportunity to go deeper, with Jesus together. Here's what I believe. I believe that over the next six weeks, the Holy Spirit is going to draw you closer to Jesus than you've ever been in your life. Can you believe that with me? Come on, just pray that with me. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, the thousands of people that call Vox Church home, in Jesus' name, that every single one of us would be drawn closer to Christ than ever before in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Yeah, amen. I really believe in this. I'm so excited about beginning this together. Start it today, all right? Start it today. There's a morning and an evening portion of this devotional, and you're going to want to dive right in starting today. Hey, on top of that, we're beginning core groups. Everybody say core groups. Core groups. Core groups are these small gatherings, right, where we go deeper in our relationship with God together. If you have not signed up for a core group, you are missing out. Find two or three friends. Jump online at voxchurch.org. Sign up. We'll get you all the information you need. If you've already signed up and you're at one of our microchurch locations, you can get your core group booklet today at microchurch, all right? And if you haven't signed up, you can go to the welcome table at any one of our locations. Go to the next steps table, and they'll get you all the information you need and, uh, and you can be connected. And listen, I just need to say this, church. I really believe in my spirit that now is the time to be more connected to the body of Christ than ever. I really believe that. I mean, I'm sure you've been paying attention to the world that we're living in, the crazy world that we're living in. And I think that if we're honest, a lot of us are really hurting right now. You may be hurting because of the news about Breonna Taylor. 
You may be hurting because of the police officers that got shot at one of the rallies after the news about Breonna Taylor. There is such a tension, such an offense, and everybody looks at it a little bit differently, right? You've got an election coming up that is hotter than hot, people debating, people arguing, and I think it's such a dangerous time for us to isolate. It's such a dangerous time to not stay connected because how does our nation heal from racial injustice? How does our nation heal from the broken divide politically? How does our nation heal from the disagreements that force us apart? Friend, the first thing that we need is relationship. The first thing that we need is relationship. And in the context of relationship, we begin to learn each other. We begin to understand our brother and we find the capacity to love in ways that we couldn't otherwise ever know it. It is so important to stay connected to the family of God. You may not see everything the same way somebody else sees it, but let's cling to the word. Let's be renewed in the spirit of our minds and then let's stand for righteousness, for justice, for holiness, and most importantly, for Jesus right now now in Jesus name and so I just feel like it's such a burden on my heart I've been praying for you all week don't drift from the family of God don't drift don't isolate don't hold on to something that you're not expressing and sharing with your brothers and sisters in Christ now's the time to stand together to not allow all the craziness of our world to pull us apart and so I believe so much in this devotional I believe so much in microchurch and in core because it's in this context that we go deeper in relationship in Jesus' name. Somebody say amen today. Amen. Amen. So important. So important. John chapter 4, starting our new series today. John chapter 4, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I'm going to read 26 verses, so buckle up, all right? John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground. Jacob was given to his son, Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Turn to the person next to you and tell him he has living water. He has living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, look at this, drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming down here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship 
is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are seeking, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Excuse me. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is God's word. If you want to jot some notes down today, the title of part one of personal Jesus is first hand knowledge. First hand knowledge. We're going to talk today about having first hand knowledge. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for what you're doing in Middletown. I thank you for what you're doing in Greater Bridgeport. I thank you, God, for what you're doing in Springfield. And thank you, Jesus, for Stanford and New Britain and Worcester and for all of our locations that are worshiping Jesus today, that are celebrating the grace of God. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you tie our hearts together in love. I pray in the name of Jesus that you draw us closer to you. And I pray that you put in us a deeper, more passionate thirst for Christ than we've ever had before. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Let me ask you a question. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Who's the most famous person you've ever met? You think back in your life, maybe you've met some famous people through the years. You know, I was thinking about that this week. And the truth is, I really, I I honestly haven't met that many famous people in my life. I met a basketball player, professional basketball player, when I was uh, in, just at a restaurant one time. I remember that was kind of cool. Um, I, I I saw Doogie Howser at, at, uh, at um, at uh, the uh, Disney World one time. He was like hanging out, walking by. I was like, hey, that's Doogie. I don't know what his real name is, but I saw him one time. And, 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 but I can't think of that many famous people that I've met. Maybe you've met a movie star. Maybe you've met an, a famous actor, a famous musician. Maybe you, you know, met a famous athlete, whatever it might be. I was thinking about famous people and meeting famous people this week, and I came across this picture, all right? This plaque, actually, if you can see it so well. I don't know if you can, but this plaque is from a long, long time ago. And uh, those of you that may be basketball fans might recognize this. That's, that's me, by the way. Uh, that's me as a 14, 13-year-old, whatever I was there. And then I'm next to this older gentleman who is named Red Auerbach. And if you know much about basketball, he was the coach for the Boston Celtics for years. He led the Boston Celtics to nine NBA championships. So pretty good coach, you know. And so I went to a basketball camp many, 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 many years ago, and we took pictures with Red Auerbach because it was his camp. And I can remember so clearly kind of the process. You know, there's hundreds of kids at this basketball camp. And so Red Auerbach, literally, he stood there like this. And he kept his arm out, and he kept smiling, and they just shuffled the kids in and shuffled the kids in. So they'd push you out, and you'd get put in the place, and you'd kind of slump into Red's arm, and then click, 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 click hundreds of kids. And so that's the picture. That's the smile. That's the arm. He just snuck me right under it and clicked the picture. And for some reason, now here it is 20-whatever years later, and I've still kept this picture all these years. And I got to thinking about that this week, and I thought to myself, why do we do this? 
I bet somewhere in your house, you might have a picture with an important person or on your phone or whatever it might be, a picture with somebody you look up to or somebody that you admire or somebody that's well-known, whatever it might be. And we keep these things and we kind of hold on to them. And I was just asking myself, why do we do this, you know? Maybe it's the novelty of it, you know? Maybe it's to remember the moment. Maybe it's because we gain a sense of connection when we meet somebody that's famous or somebody that's important. But it serves for us today a picture This picture serves for us as a picture of, I think, where many of us find ourselves with Jesus. Because I think that there are some of us that can hear my voice today that your relationship with Jesus is a bit like my relationship with Red Auerbach. You admire him, you know, and you've interacted with him, sort of, and maybe you even have a t-shirt with his name on it, right? You've got some details that you know about him, but you seem to lack first-hand knowledge. You seem to have lacking first-hand experience with the contact of real relationship to him. See, religion for us creates a system of traditions, a way of doing things, beliefs, rituals, rules, and they give us a sense of comfort. When I do all the things my religion requires, I then feel like I've fulfilled some responsibility, right? And it produces a sense of connection with the spiritual, a sense of connection with God. Not all bad. The traditions, all the things that we practice in religion, not necessarily inherently bad. But then life gets difficult, and your wife get sick. Your kids go through a crisis. Somebody can identify right now. You get betrayed by one of your best friends. The world around you is spinning out of control. And before you know it, your picture of God doesn't seem like it's enough anymore. That snapshot that you kept. And you eventually look at that and realize, you know what? I don't even know that guy. He doesn't call me when I'm going through a difficult time. He doesn't reach out to me. You know, when my parents were getting divorced, Red Auerbach never checked in. You know, when I was going through a tough time, when I was broke, when I was struggling in my marriage, when I was confused, he never seemed to check in. See, what happens is if all you have is secondhand religion without any firsthand knowledge in the moments of tension, in the moments of crisis, in the moments of difficulty, you end up crumbling and falling away because God created you for more than secondhand religion. He created you for firsthand and knowledge. And one of the most amazing things, church, is when we study the life of Jesus in the New Testament, what we see is he was never content with just secondhand religion. You notice again and again and again, Jesus engages. And he so often engages those who are most often neglected by our world. And so he touches the leper when they were untouchable. He spends time with the kids when they were seen as a nuisance. He welcomes Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus is rejected by everyone else around him. But here's the most important thing you've got to understand about all those instances where Jesus touches and waits and listens and spends time is that these stories in the Bible are not just an historical account of the life of Jesus. They are far more than that. These stories about Jesus engaging, they are a sacred invitation. They are a revelation of who God is and how God wants to interact with you. They are an invitation to firsthand knowledge of God that you can know him like that. Now think about that just for a moment with me. God can be 
known. Not just known about, not just a quick picture and a t-shirt, not just an idea that I pursue, but an actual person, a relationship that I have. God can be known. He can be known. Now, the challenge of relationship with God is that relationship with God isn't like relationship with anyone else you've ever met. Psychologists tell us that we learn as human beings by association and comparison, right? So you can remember as a little kid going to elementary school and you had time for compare and contrast, right? Remember compare and contrast? This person's tall, this person's short. That color is blue, that color is red. Compare and contrast. My kids used to love the book Fred and Ted, right? Fred has a big bed, Ted has a small bed. Like compare and contrast. Right now with our daughter, she's one and a half. She's learning compare and contrast. And so she's discovered hot, except the problem is hot and cold are still a little mixed up, and so we'll give her an ice cube, and she'll go, hot, hot, and we'll go, no, no, that one's cold, you know, or she'll reach her arms up, and she'll say, down, down, and he's like, no, that's up, you know, and so she's still trying to figure out which one is which, compare and contrast. This is how our brains work, and so scripture gives us many different comparisons for God. We say God is like a fire. He is. God is like a wind. God is like a lion. God is like a father. God is like a husband. God is like a king. But we have to understand that all these comparisons fall short because there's no one else in the universe quite like God. And so if you really want to know him, you must become aware, listen today, of the assumptions that you're making about him and then allow the truth of Jesus to reconstruct your perspective of God so that you can go in deeper relationship with God. And we see in this story of the woman at the well, Jesus doing exactly that. Jesus reorienting this woman, rediscovering for herself who God really is. And I want you to notice about this story first how Jesus does not play by any of our rules, right? Every society has certain norms that we go by, certain rules. Like we've got millions of them in American culture, right? Like one example is, you know, when you see somebody in America and you walk by them, you say, hey, how you doing? And they say, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Hey, how you doing? I don't want to actually know how you're doing. I'm just saying that it's our way of saying hi. I mean, how weird is that? Why don't we just say hi? I don't know, but that's what we do. Hey, how you doing? No, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Just, just make it one word or less. How you doing? You know? Hey, it's just one of those weird things. We have all these little norms that we just adhere to as a culture. And those range from just little preferences all the way to entire religious systems, right? And so Jesus, what we see, he constantly ignores and even sometimes attacks and disrupts those systems. And so the story begins by saying Jesus had to go through Samaria. And the original readers, especially the Jewish readers of this story, would have immediately gone, mm, right? Because if you were going from the, the one place he was to the next place he needed to go, from Judea to Galilee, you would most often go around Samaria. It added a lot of time to your travel, but Samaritans and Jews were in an ethnic civil war that had lasted for generations. See, they hated one another. The Jews saw the Samaritans as an inferior race. Many, many, many years before that, the Jewish people of the region of Samaria intermarried with Gentile people and formed a version of their religion that was very different from the purity of pursuit of God. And so there was this, this sense amongst the Jews that the Samaritans were half-breeds, the Samaritans were unclean, the Samaritans were pagans. And so if you really wanted to insult somebody, you would call that Jew a Samaritan. 
That was one way to insult them. And so walking through Samaria was not just, you know, religiously, you know, sinful in some sense in the minds of the culture, but it was also dangerous because it was a place where the Jew was not at all safe. It was walking through the bad guy's town in their point of view. And so here Jesus enters Samaria and then he goes on and begins to talk to a woman, which for a Jewish man to do that with a Samaritan woman was just unheard of. And then he pushes it even farther. and He says, would you give me a drink? And she's shocked because she's like, your Jewish lips are going to touch my Samaritan cup. In the Jewish tradition, you are unclean just by touching my cup. Even talking to me is off limits. So why then does Jesus go to what seems to be such great lengths to offend our sensibilities? He's trying to show us something, church. He's trying to show us that you can never have firsthand knowledge of God unless you're willing to submit your preferences, your comforts, and your culture to Jesus. You can't have firsthand knowledge of God until you're willing to do that. See, every one of us has an underlying propensity to make God into our own image. We operate from the assumption that God is basically like me. He's basically like me, but it's impossible to know him if your primary goal is just to simply get him on your side. You can't form God in your own image and then get him on your side. You must submit yourself to his image and then get on his side. That's how relationship with God works. And so, so many of us have a secondhand religious experience with God because we've never come to a place of deeply internally submitting to an image of God that looks different than what we would prefer. Right, And so you remember the story in Judges chapter 5, maybe, where Joshua is about to step into Jericho in the first battle in the promised land. And right before he steps into Jericho, he has this angelic encounter. And the angel shows up, and Joshua is shocked, and he says the first question, I love it. He says, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And you would think that it's the people of God. He called them out of Egypt. The angel's going to say, I'm for you. But instead, I love the angel's response. It's just one word. He goes, no. That's the answer. Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? He goes, no. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua does the only thing you can do if you want firsthand knowledge of God. He falls down and he worships. And so it's this attitude of submission. It's this attitude of surrender. And my question for you today, as we get into this topic of personal Jesus, as we talk about having a firsthand knowledge of God, is have you ever done that? Have you internally come to a place where you submit your version of God to the scripture and to the truth of who he really is? See, Jesus is always holy and fully himself. He can't be bought. He can't be sold. And that makes us uncomfortable because that means that he's not a Republican. It means that, I'm just getting real, it means that he's not a Democrat. It means that he doesn't belong to white people. It means he doesn't belong to black people. It means he doesn't belong to any one group or persuasion. And some of us are trapped at a distance, unable to really have deep relationship with God because you can only know Jesus to the degree that you surrender your urge to control him. You can only know him to that degree. So ask the person next to you, whose side are you on? Go ahead, ask him, whose side are you on? Oh, it's getting awkward. Whose side are you on? Well, awkward is right where this relationship with this woman at the well starts, right? Because he starts a conversation with her, and it's immediately awkward. She's like, uh, you shouldn't be talking to me. I'm the wrong person, and it's also the wrong time of day to be at the well. We're told that they gather there at noon, and scholars have often pointed that out because people at that time didn't go to the well at noon. Because in the Middle East at noon, it is so hot that no one goes to draw water. 
And so the people go to the well in the morning. Now, we know that Jesus was there because he was passing through Samaria on a mission from the Father, but we don't know right away why this woman was there. And scholars for years have debated it, but most of the evidence seems to point to the fact that this woman was a social outcast, that she was not accepted by the people in her town. And so because she was shunned by the people in her town, she avoided the well during the busy times of the day. And so Jesus asks her for a drink, and of course she's surprised, and then he begins to speak about a much deeper need in her spirit. Look at it with me in verse 10. Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for drink,' You had asked him, and he would have given you living water. She doesn't know what that means. She's a little confused. And so Jesus expounds in verse 13. He answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them, check this out, will never thirst. I underlined that in my Bible because that is such a bold statement. He says, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Will never thirst. A spring on the inside. I could imagine that as she's listening to Jesus say these words, she must have been baffled. What are you talking about? Friends, Jesus, by the way, these are just as relevant to you and I as they were to this woman so many years ago because Jesus here is introducing a radically different philosophy for how to obtain a satisfying life. So important. How to obtain a satisfying life. See, naturally, we pursue outward pleasures to get to inward satisfaction. And so you may not even realize you're doing this, but you're saying to yourself, well, if my relationship with my spouse was just a little better, I'd be satisfied. Well, if I had a spouse, I'd be satisfied. Well, if we just got that house, I'd be satisfied. Well, if I had that new car, well, if I could just lose those 10 pounds, well, if I could, whatever it might be for you, all these outward expressions are going to satisfy me. But what Jesus is saying at the core is he's saying satisfaction doesn't work from the outside in. Satisfaction works from the inside out you've been pursuing it all wrong and so he's saying you've got to begin to rethink how you pursue satisfaction i love what dr tim keller said about this it'll be on the screen he said as long as you think check this out there is a pretty good chance that you will achieve some of your dreams as long as you think you have a shot at success you experience your inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as hope and so you can remain almost completely oblivious to how deep your thirst actually is most of us tell ourselves that the reason we remain unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals and so we can live almost our entire lives without admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst what he's trying to show this woman is that no change in your outward experience will ever satisfy the deepest deepest core thirst because that thirst is for relationship with God and it seems that he switches gears here because right in the middle of this conversation about her thirst he says go call your husband right he's not switching gears he's actually exposing the idol that she's put in place of God in her heart and I could imagine that as soon as he says that a wave of shame kind of hits her and she responds with a very brief I have no husband I have no husband. Now, behind those words is a whole lot of story, a whole lot of history, because Jesus is about to expose that she's had five husbands, and now she's living with a man that she's not married to. But she says it real quick. She says, I have no husband. And sometimes it's the shortest phrases that have the deepest history in our lives, right? And so this shame begins to creep over her. 
And he responds by reading her mail, right? He says, listen, I know about your five husbands, and I know the man you're living with right now. And I would imagine at this moment, she's a bit surprised, right? She responds with, wow, you, 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 you must be a prophet. What Jesus is trying to get her to understand and you to understand right now at our Greater Bridgeport location, right now in Stanford and in Worcester, every single individual that can hear my voice right now in the room, what he wants us to understand is that he knows, stay with me, everything about you. He knows everything about you. He knows about that divorce. He knows about that addiction that's on the side. He knows about that pornography that you've been hiding. He knows about that lie you told your wife. He knows about that situation at work that you're hoping no one else hears about. He knows about every detail. He knows about that gambling that you've been trying to hide. He knows about the fears that are keeping you up in the middle of the night. He knows about that anxiety that's making it difficult for you to breathe. There is one in the universe who knows everything about you. Think about that just for a moment. Everything about you. I remember years ago, I was in London, and I went to the Holocaust Museum in London, and when I was there, there was a, a hallway full of photographs of, um, of uh, you know, the various uh, concentration camps. And these people piled up like cattle, naked and starving. And I wanted to look away so bad, but as I looked at these photos, these black and white images blown up, I just froze. I, and, and I remember thinking to myself, that might be the scariest of all nightmares to be stripped of my humanity, to be utterly and completely exposed and not to be able to do anything about it. And yet what we find in Scripture is that there is one in whom you are utterly and completely exposed before. Hebrews chapter 4 puts it very bluntly. It says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so why would Jesus expose this woman like this? Is it to condemn her? Why would he expose her? Is it to bring shame? Or maybe something deeper is going on in this story. Maybe Jesus is trying to get us to an even deeper truth in this interaction with the woman at the well. See, you remember that it was Jacob's well in which they were at, right? We're told specifically in the story, and whenever you see a detail in the Bible, never skip past it because all the details in the scriptures have a reason. God is always writing multiple stories at the same time, and so it's not an accident that Jacob's well is mentioned because if you know the story of Jacob, you know that he met his bride, the love of his life, Rachel, at a well. And it's weird because he didn't just meet Rachel at a well. Randomly, he unexpectedly met Rachel at a well at noon in the middle of the day. See, this story is giving us a glimpse into God's eternal plan that just as Jacob found his bride at a well at noon, so God came in search for his bride at this well. And just as this woman was a Samaritan and was an outcast, she was half Jew, half Gentile, so God planned to build his church with such people, with the outcasts, some Jews, some Gentiles brought together in one so that the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the 
free, the black and the white, the old and the young could actually be one in Christ as his bride. See, just as this woman, it gets crazier. Just as this woman, Jesus points out, he could have picked a million different people, but he picks her just as this woman had five husbands and the man she was living with was not her husband, making six. She now meets Jesus who becomes for her the seventh man. Now the number seven is the number of completion in the scripture. We're told that God rested on the seventh day and made it a Sabbath. So Christ provides what all the failed lovers could not and becomes a Sabbath rest for her her just as he intends to become a sabbath rest for you god's always telling stories in the story so when he says go call your husband it wasn't a statement of condemnation it was an opportunity for revelation a revelation that says hey i know you i know every detail of your life i know every nuance of your story i see you and i still love you. I see you and I still open my arms to you. Because you remember that this woman at the well, and maybe you don't know this, is the first woman, the first person that Jesus ever, ever openly reveals himself as Messiah, which is crazy. He chooses a rejected outcast with five failed marriages who's living in sin to be the very first person to ever discover that he is in fact clearly and surely the savior of the world. And he did this so that you could know that Jesus did not come to accept the perfect. He came to perfect the broken. Come on, somebody. And so somebody here, you've been hiding something from God. I'm talking to you right now. You've been hiding something from your friends. You've been hiding something from your spouse. You've been hiding something from your boss. You've been living a half-truth You've been living a lie. You can never have firsthand knowledge of God until you're willing to invite Jesus into your brokenness, into those places of shame, into those places of hurt. I wonder if even now, as you're listening to this sermon in Worcester, as you're listening to this sermon in Hartford, that even now, as you're listening in your living room, you would invite Jesus into those places of pain. Invite Jesus into those places of hurt. Look how the story ends in verse 27. It says, Then his disciples returned. They're surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, What do you want? or Why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town, made their way toward him. And meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, uh, could someone have brought him food? Boy, they're always a step behind, aren't they? You know what? Doesn't that make you feel better about yourself? Because sometimes you're a step behind too. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I love this. The woman leaves, and she tells the whole town about Jesus. The outcast becomes the evangelist. The insignificance of her life is swallowed up by the significance of her encounter. (laughs) Friends, this is what always happens when you have firsthand knowledge of Jesus. Your priorities change when you get around him. 
What you value changes. Your affections begin to change. And you get swept up into a story that is bigger than yourself. See, we live naturally as such self-consumed individuals. And yet when you begin to get around Jesus, you start to see that there's a world beyond your world. That there is more to life than eating and sleeping and living and dying. That God has an eternal call, an eternal purpose, something that lasts forever that he's calling you to. Jesus said, I have food you can't see. I see a harvest you can't see. The natural man is consumed with natural cares. But when you get closer to Jesus, he opens your eyes and you begin to value what he values. That's why the woman, it says, left her water jar. The water jar that was once so important is now obsolete because she's discovered the power of living water. Friend, I've got a burning vision for our church and that we become people who are so heavenly minded that we're actually able to do some earthly good. People who love God so fervently and passionately that it reorients our values and no longer are we consumed with self. We begin to actually love our brother and love our neighbor and stretch beyond our boundaries because we've been contacted by the power of the one who loves us perfectly. Come on, that's a vision from heaven. And I love this story because it goes so much deeper than a well and water and trip to Samaria. This story is intended to point us to the greatest story ever told. Because this woman would have never met Jesus if Jesus hadn't been thirsty. He stopped at the well to get a drink. In other words, her deepest thirst was satisfied because God had stepped into humanity and suffered thirst. So think about it like this. His thirst led to her ultimate satisfaction. And this is the secret to life. That when Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago and his blood touched the earth and a crown of thorn was smashed on his head and the weight of sin was placed on his shoulders and in his soul, his body, and his spirit, he absorbed the wrath of God and the pain of sin. It's only John, the writer of this story, who records the two words Jesus said just before he died. He said, I thirst. I thirst. Friend, he wasn't looking for a bottle of water. He wasn't talking about a physical need. See, in that moment on the cross, the well of living water was roped off from the Son of God. In that moment on the cross, Jesus was denied access to the living water of heaven. He was separated from his Father. In that moment, as he hung on the cross, he was left thirsty in a divine exchange so that Jesus could take my eternal thirst and I could receive his access to living water. Jesus 
cried out, I thirst, so that many, many years later through the Apostle John who wrote this story, the Lord could say in Revelation 22, the Spirit and the bride, the woman at the well and the one who met her say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. See, Jesus said, I thirst so that you could say, I'm satisfied in him. Jesus said, I thirst so that you could have living water. Well, Justin, what's the living water that Jesus spoke? about it's God himself first hand knowledge it's God himself that's the living water that's the living water so I wonder right here right now right now at North Haven right now in Stanford right now in New Britain Right now, why is it that you find yourself lingering at a distance in secondhand religion? Why is it that you know about God but feel like you don't have firsthand knowledge of God? Why is it that times in prayer feel like a chore of religion rather than a meeting with your closest friend? See, I believe. Friends, that Vox Church is on the edge of a spiritual revolution where every single person in this family experiences the personal Jesus, firsthand knowledge. And I believe that this whole series really is a sacred invitation to you. And so we took a lot of time when we wrote a devotional and somebody is going to lose it before they get back home. And I just, I just beg you, don't. What if you took this seriously? What if you actually, every morning and every evening, began to open this book and open God's Word and began to pray? Say, oh, it's, it's confusing. I don't have answers. I don't know. Ask the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He'll talk back to you in your inner man. He'll reveal truth to you in your heart if you're patient, if you're humble, and if you seek Him. I believe that right now our church community is right there on the edge of a great move of his spirit. But we must seek him if we are to find him. Personal. I really believe with all my heart that God wants to bring you into a greater personal revelation of his spirit than you've ever known before. And that's why it's so important to join a core group now. Before you leave today, if you're at one of our microchurch locations, you can sign up today if you're watching online. Join a core group now because it's in this context that we begin to know God as we go deeper with each other. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't say, I'm too busy. Friend, you are not too busy for this. This is your moment. This is an opportunity, an invitation from heaven. Take it. Take it. At every one of our locations and those joining us online, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. I want to pray today. I want to pray. Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your head? Would you pray with me today? At every one of our locations, we're going to sing at our live locations in just a moment. But no matter where you are today, with your eyes closed, 
And with your heart open, I want to invite you to come. Maybe you sense that inner thirst and you've known all about religion, but you've not had a vibrant, pulsating, life-on-life living relationship with God. He's calling you right now deeper. Maybe there's a separation between you and God because your life hasn't been surrendered to Him. You haven't trusted Him. I want to invite you right now to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. And He invites you into relationship with God on the merits of His grace. He wants to forgive you of your sin and give you peace with God. He wants to heal the broken places of your heart and reveal himself to you in a first-hand experience. But you got to take a step of faith today. At every one of our locations right now, and even those joining us online, on the count of three at every location, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand. If you're here today and you need to place your faith in Christ, you've been living far from God, and today you signed up for a microchurch service in Middletown. You signed up for a service in North Haven and you find yourself right now at a place of distance, do not leave this moment without saying yes to Christ. I'm going to count to three. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand right where you are. I can't see all your hands, but I know that God can. And this is an opportunity for you to take that step of faith. Every single week, week after week after week, by God's grace here at Vox, we see people take that step of faith and trust Christ. Today's your day. One, two, three. If that's you, every location right now, stick up your hand. Stick up your hand. Say, that's me, Justin. Today, you're talking to me right now through this screen. Today, I've got to trust him. Today, I've got to surrender. Today, I've got to make him the king of my heart. Just keep it up for another second. Give you an opportunity. If you're still debating, stop debating. Start trusting. Take a step of faith right now. I want to lead you in a simple prayer. You may put your hand down. I want to lead you in a simple prayer of surrender. Just say, Jesus, save me. Whisper it to him right now. Come into my heart. Be the king of my life. I believe you died and rose again. Today I receive grace. Thank you for saving me. Amen. If you're here today joining us online, I want you to text Jesus to the number on the screen. If you're at one of our microchurch locations, you just prayed that prayer. I want to encourage you, make sure you pray with someone at your service before you leave. I'm going to pray a blessing over you, and we're going to sing about the glory of God. Because I believe that every one of us right now, God is drawing to a place of decision. He is drawing us to a place where we have to say, I want to pursue a deeper personal relationship with you, firsthand knowledge. And so as we sing today at all of our live locations, I want to urge you, make that your prayer. Let's pray together, church. Father, I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We glorify you and worship you today in Jesus' name. Fox Church seeks to reach New England and beyond with the life-transforming message of Jesus. If you have been impacted by this message or the ministry of Vox Church, you can continue to help us reach others by giving today at voxchurch.org forward slash give. For more information on how to get involved, visit us online or on any social media platform at vox.church. We always appreciate you taking the time to rate or review this message on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the Vox Church podcast.